Today's scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. Como él no tenía con qué pagar, el Señor mandó que lo vendieran a él, a su esposa y a sus hijos, y todo lo que tenía para así saldar la deuda. El siervo se postró delante de él, tenga paciencia conmigo, le rogó, y se lo pagaré todo. El Señor se compadeció de su siervo, le perdonó la deuda y lo dejó en libertad. Al salir, aquel siervo se encontró con uno de sus compañeros que le debía cien monedas de plata. Lo agarró por el cuello y comenzó a estrangularlo. Págame lo que me debes, le exigió. Ne devais-tu pas aussi avoir pitié de ton compagnon comme j'en ai eu pitié de toi? Et son maître irrité le livra au bourreau jusqu'à ce qu'il eût payé tout ce qu'il devait. C'est ainsi que mon Père Céleste vous traitera si chacun de vous ne pardonne pas à son frère de tout son cœur. Well, good morning and welcome to Ed City. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the outreach pastors here at Ed City, and we're so glad that you're able to connect with us online this morning. We're actually continuing in our sermon series on Kingdom Values. Uh, it's a sermon series that we started a few weeks ago, and we're just excited to see what God is doing in and through it. We've been looking at Matthew chapter 18, and today we pick up towards the end part of chapter 18, which Jesus closes the section of this chapter with the parable. That sounds, if anything, maybe straightforward for many, but I think there's something deeper here that Jesus really wants us to hear and listen. So we're going to talk about that topic, and we're going to talk how hard it is for maybe for some of us to even hear about this idea of forgiveness. So if you're sitting here and wondering, oh man, or, or, or just wondering even online, just another topic on forgiveness, that is such a hard thing to do. And I don't want to forgive someone. And I get it if you're in that place right now or maybe even in this season of life. So I understand. It's not easy. It is hard. So here's the thing. One could argue that the biblical teaching on forgiveness and reconciliation, it's so radical that there are no cultures or societies that are in accord with it. Bonhoeffer states, our community with one another, or meaning in Christ, consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. So Christian brotherhood and sisterhood is a spiritual one and not a human reality. In this, it differs from all other communities. Basically, what's going on in the statement is basically in this simple form. That this teaching is that Christians in community are to never give up on one another. 
never to give up on a relationship, and never write off another believer. We must never tire, if anything, of forgiving and repenting, and seeking, if anything, to repair our relationships. And we see this in Scripture from Matthew chapter 5, which tells us that we should go to someone if we know they have something against us. Or even Matthew chapter 18, which we even heard, where it says that we should approach someone if we have something against them. If anything, if any relation has cooled off or has been weakened in any way, it's always our move first to engage. And I think God always holds us accountable to that, where we need to repair that relationship. A Christian is responsible to begin the process of reconciliation, regardless of how the distant or the alienation may begin. Basically, this is an ongoing need within God's church to work things out. So we need to do this regularly, and I believe it's really important. So when we look at this passage that was just read to you, it's pretty clear in what we can see. See, if you look at it, Peter basically asked Jesus how many times he must forgive his brother when he sins against him. And Jesus answers direct to Peter and the rest of the disciples who believe in Christ. He said, therefore, the, the parable of anything really directs us to the believers, to the saved. Jesus' answer basically means an infinite amount of times is what you need to forgive. And the parable illustrates this really beautifully. But see, here's the problem, like I said. It's not as straightforward maybe that we want it to be. The question you or I would have to ask is, how many times must we forgive others? That's probably what we're thinking when we hear this passage. It might seem very simple or straightforward, but I think this morning, the unspoken question and problem is really not that about how many times we need to forgive others. It's the infinite number of times that we need to forgive. So what happens if we don't forgive? So here's a question that I want to propose to you this morning that we get to look at. How can we forgive others in an infinite number of times? So there's three things that I want to share with you. Three points. And these three points can be broken into three scenes that we can see in this parable itself. So here's point one. By knowing forgiveness is radical. The second point is by knowing unforgiveness leaves to deep wounds. And third point is by knowing God's forgiveness and ours. So those are the three points that I want to look at with you this morning. See, in Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching His disciples what life is like in the family of faith. He's showing us how gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. It includes some hard things because all life-giving things are hard. And among them is this act of forgiveness. See, the thing is, Jesus' answer to Peter's question is extreme. How many times should we forgive our brothers who sin against us? Not seven times, but 77 times. This is one of the many extreme things that Jesus says throughout Matthew chapter 18. So when we answer Peter's question, his reply is so radical as the rest of the teachings that Jesus laid out. In the same way, we are called to forgive others. Now, hear me on this. Theoretically, forgiveness is wonderful. But realistically, it's nearly impossible. See, when sin comes charging at us, harming us in ways that we could have never imagined, and the sinner is there before us, unable to undo the damage, how can we grant forgiveness? Not even that, but how can we do it again and again? See, this parable isn't about one-time forgiveness. It's about lifelong forgiveness. And that's where the trouble really begins. 
So let's look at point one. By knowing forgiveness is radical. Look at me from verses 23 to 27 in this passage. And I'll read it to you. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with the servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him uh, who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, he ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment had to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of the pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him of all his debt. See, the story, like all of Jesus' parable, has an easily understandable plot. A king is trying to balance his books and therefore settling debts, <clears throat> settling his debts. He calls a man who owes him almost 10,000 talents. This man is a slave, given the fact that when he can't repay, the king plans to sell him and his family, probably both as a punishment and to regain some of the lost money. See, the servant, of course, cannot pay such a large sum, so he begs for forgiveness. It's important here to understand how large the sum was. The talent was worth 6,000 years. Nears was in that days a wage for a common laborer. Therefore, the math tells us that one talent was worth about 20 years of wages. So look at this. 10,000 talents then was, would equal about 200,000 years of wages. Obviously, this is an incredible amount of money. One that the servant could not repay. But the servant asked for time to repay this debt. How he occurred, we're not sure, because it really doesn't tell in the story. But regardless, we can see that his request for patience to repay is pretty ridiculous. No one could pay such a debt. He's at the end of his rope. He's begging for patience, hoping that the king gives him time to make it up. But he doesn't. The king does something far greater instead. He forgives him entirely and releases him. In this first meeting between the servant and the king, the king grants, if anything, radical forgiveness. To understand this, we need to know what forgiveness is. So when we're speaking of forgiveness, Jesus always somehow uses the image of debt to describe the nature of sin. When someone seriously wrongs you, there is an absolute unavoidable sense that the wrongdoers owe you. The wrong has incurred an obligation, a liability, a debt. Anyone who has been wronged feels a compulsion to make the other person pay down that debt. We do that by hurting them, yelling at them, making them feel bad in some way, or just waiting and watching and hoping that something bad happens to them. Only after we see them suffer in some, some cosmic way do we sense that the debt has been paid and the, the sense of obligation is gone. See, now this sense of debt, liability, and obligation is impossible to escape. Anyone who denies it exists has simply not been wronged or sinned against in any serious way. So let me ask you this, what then is forgiveness? And I stole this from Tim Keller, so a lot of credit goes to him. Basically, forgiveness means giving up the right to seek, uh, to seek repayment from the one who harmed you. But it must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. So what does that mean? Think about it in this way as I, as I give you a picture. Think about how monetary debts work. If a friend breaks my lamp, and if the lamp costs $50 to replace, 
then the act of lamp breaking incurs a debt of $50. If I let him pay for it and replace the lamp, I get my lamp back and he's out of $50. But if I forgive him for what he did, the debt does not somehow vanish into thin air. See, when I forgive him, I absorb the cost and payment for the lamp. Either I will pay the $50 to replace it, or I will lose the lighting in that room. See, to forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. Someone always pays every debt. This is the case in all situations of wrongdoing. Even when no money is involved, when you are sinned against, you lose some things. Perhaps it's happiness, reputation, peace of mind, a relationship, or an opportunity. There are two things to do about sin. Imagine, for example, that someone has hurt you, your reputation. You could try to restore it by paying the other person back, by voicing public criticism and ruining his or her reputation. Or you could forgive the one who wronged you, refuse payback, and absorb the damage to your reputation. And you will have to restore it over time. In all cases, when wrong is done, there is a debt. And there is no way to deal with it without suffering. Either you make the person suffer for it, or you forgive and suffer for it yourself. See, forgiveness is always extremely costly, or as I said, basically radical. It is emotionally very expensive. It takes much blood, sweat, and tears. When you forgive, you pay the debt yourself in several ways. See, forgiveness, though it is extremely difficult and extremely radical, as I said before, it's also painful because you are bearing the cost of the sin yourself. Because forgiveness will deepen your character when done right, when extended towards others. And it will free you to talk to and help the person and lead them to love and peace rather than bitterness and anger that you may harbor in your heart. And if you do this right, as you extend forgiveness, you're walking, if anything, in what we see in this passage, walking in the path of your master. See, it is typical for non-Christians today to say that the cross of Christ makes no sense. Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive us? Actually, no one who has been deeply wrong just forgives. See, if everyone wrongs you, there are only two options. One, you make them suffer, or you refuse to, or you refuse revenge and forgive them, and then you suffer. And if we can't forgive without suffering, how much more must God suffer in order to forgive us? See, if we unavoidably sense the obligation and debt and injustice of sin in our soul, how much more does God know it? See, on the cross we see God forgiving us. And that was possible only because God suffered. See, on the cross God's love was satisfied. We see this in what Jesus has done. Because we see when forgiveness was extended, Christ Himself took on the suffering, the nails, the thorns, the sweat, and the blood. See, the experience of the gospel gives us, if anything, two prerequisites uh, for a life of forgiveness. That's either emotional humility or emotional wealth. And humility, which has been the theme thus far, even in this sermon series and this chapter that we see, is so crucial. Because only when you're able to humble can you really extend forgiveness. And that is so important, and that's exactly what God did, where He humbled Himself to the cross. And that's why it came with a radical cost. And that's why we see that forgiveness is radical itself. Now knowing all of this, 
and how we are now to call extend forgiveness and reconciliation to others, here's the sad reality. As much as we know that this is true, we all react in a whole separate different way. If anything, we are much like that servant. Or as Peter was asking the question, almost Jesus was putting Peter as a servant to see of his brokenness, which is basically in us as well. Where do we really extend forgiveness to others? So let's look at and pick up in scene two of this parable and look at point two, which is by knowing unforgiveness leaves deep wounds. So I'm going to read to you verses 28 to 30. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarius. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience on me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. See, we should find this, if anything, repulsive. This should make you angry. This should make you frustrated. And guess what? Jesus knew this and he wanted to do this intentionally, I think. He put this in there. But more than that, he wanted us to see our own heart before God's forgiveness. Are we just as repulsive? What do we do with the forgiveness God has granted? Do we in turn forgive others? Or do we still expect justice? How forgiving are we? See, this parable pushes us to a deep evaluation of our own heart. We could be so unforgiving of those who sin against us, so much of our unforgiveness we're unaware of. But like poison, it will ruin us. When we withhold forgiveness, we're saying to the world that Jesus' grace is sufficient to clean us, but not good enough to clean others. Are we going from Sunday service to a troubled Sunday night dinner with the family? Are we harboring our forgiveness towards someone who could never undo their sin? Are we expecting something from others that we hope that no one could ever expect of us? Are we willing to forgive or do we just talk about the idea of forgiving? What do we say about our view of forgiveness? What we really believe shows up in how we act towards others. We will either let them go with a smile in our heart or we will throw them in jail with bitterness in our heart. There's no such thing as moderate forgiveness. But there is radical forgiveness or radical unforgiveness. The question is, which are you? Now there are so many cases that we can see in real life and in this passage. And here's the first one that I want to share with you. Now look at the law of forgiveness. And this is something that Peter brought up. See, in the Jewish law, you had to forgive a person three times. And after you've forgiven them three times, that was it. You didn't have to do it anymore. You didn't have to forgive them anymore. So Peter thinking, well, the law tells me three times. How about if I doubled it and added it for good measure? Maybe seven times. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister? I wonder how long this question has been burning, if anything, inside of Peter's mind. See, looking back only 20 verses before this, it reveals, if anything, a controversial question as to who of the disciples was the greatest in the kingdom. Pastor Steve covered quite a bit on this. There was such ego in there, but that ego itself amongst the people that Jesus was addressing, he basically said it took as simple as faith of a child to come forward, to show what true humility is in the kingdom. See, I, I, I really believe this and why Peter even asked this question. See, the lack of humility among God's people leads us to all sorts of singing, sinning against one another. And so Peter's question seems very timely. How many times do I forgive a brother or a sister 
who mistreats me? Should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus answered, no, 77 times. Forgiving one seven times sounds reasonable to, to an average human being. But here's the, the word that you need to focus on, sound. But, but Jesus here ups it to a point where he said it's endless amount of time. Rather, our mercy and forgiveness is to be without end. Since God's mercy towards us for our sin is endless. Basically, God put, if anything, a high marker in forgiveness and a high marker in debt. Because God wants you to see the weight and depth of it. He knows you can never measure up to it. More is He calling you to be not legalistic in your own heart. He wants you to know the depth of His forgiveness towards you. So it motivates you to love others with truth and grace because God cares much more about the process of reconciliation than just the destination itself. And can I tell you this? This is a value that I hold dear to in ministry. As I disciple people over the time and over the years, something that I hold close is that I really believe that God cares more about the journey than just the destination. So here is a case where a person's heart has not forgiven. And you might have heard this in the news already in itself. The case comes from Harvey Weinstein, which you may have known through the news itself. He has been accused of all sorts of sexual crimes, from rape to harassment to you name it, against a ton of ladies. And recently he came up with the settlement, a settlement of, oh, I believe, about $19 million to go towards to these victims who've been, whatever has happened to them. But there's a catch to this. So ultimately, what's happened over time, most of the ladies have agreed to the settlement where they will get the payment from them. But here's a catch in this. Though some women agree with it, others have not agreed with it, and they basically said this is injustice. Why was this injustice? Because within the settlement itself, Weinstein put it in the document saying that he will never admit that he did any of these crimes. The companies that have been sold or bought out and the insurance companies are there are basically will be the ones that will be paying you and taking care of you whatever damage has been done. So even in this whole process itself, even in Weinstein, he never extended to even apologize or admit the wrong that he's done. See, in this process itself, there's great wounds and pain, if anything, on both sides, on both parties itself. What would have been the right thing for him to do? I think the right thing that he could have done is to admit what he did, the wrong that he did, apologizing, where forgiveness is added to all of this. Yes, the money had been extended, but he'll be observing it as well, knowing that he would have to take the jail time and whatever that may be and the consequences that will happen to be. Instead, he chose the other way, not to be humble, not to forgive in any form, but instead he basically acted as nothing has ever happened. And this is not what I'm sure that God would want, even for any one of us. Because Jesus himself, he absorbed it all for you and I. Now, Harvey Weinstein's case may be extreme in its ways, but let's bring this closer to our home. Closer to maybe your relationship with your spouse. Maybe a church member who's done something that was wrong to you. Maybe someone within your own community group itself, your small group, where maybe you're not talking to each other, or you're passively avoiding each other, whatever that may be. You're not spoken for a long time. Or maybe you've been part of a previous church for whatever reason, and you left for it. 
but yet forgiveness for whatever because there was hurt and damage from it has not been extended to maybe either one of the parties. Are you still harboring bitterness and anger in your heart? Where are we today? Are we a church that will take a posture of humility and show forgiveness? Or will we take the opposite, which is to show unforgiveness? Depending on what you do will determine what happens next. So let's look at the final and last point, point three, or I like to say scene three of the story of the parable. And that's this one. It's going to be from verses 31 to 35. And that's by knowing God's forgiveness and ours. And I'll read that to you. <clears throat> when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had been taking place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your own heart. See, early in the story, Matthew records Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, said, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. See, James says it in the book of James in the same way, where judgment by God is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. So no matter how you slice it or dice it, the Bible makes it clear. If we are, if we are to be forgiven, we must also forgive others. And we see this clearly in this parable as well. The other servant witnessed this gross injustice and he ran and told the king what they've seen. And the king summons the servant once again, but this time mercy has run out. Now it's time for judgment. No one's listening or reading this parable that looks at the king and points out to the king, how can you do that? No, he is just to condemn the servant for his unforgiveness. If we live our lives in unforgiveness, we alone will be surprised to stand before the king and be judged. Everyone else will see that, see what we said we believed or only a nice thought we had, but not a reality that we live. So here's the thing that Jesus says, if you do not forgive men their sins, your heavenly father will not forgive your sins. This doesn't mean that we, we can earn God's forgiveness through our own forgiving, but that we could disqualify ourselves from it. No heart that is truly repentant towards God can be unforgiving towards others. A lack of forgiveness towards others is the direct result of the lack of repentance towards God. And as we know, we must repent in order to be saved. See, the entire purpose of this parable is to answer Peter's question. How many times should I forgive my brother who sinned against me? And Jesus' answer is forever. This means our forgiveness must be real. It must be from the heart and abiding. And how can we do this? I think Tim Keller puts this really well to help us understand. See, mo most of us, most of the wrong done to us cannot be assessed in purely economical terms. Someone may be robbed you of your happiness, your reputation, your opportunity, or a certain aspect of your freedom. See, no price tag can, can be put on such thing, yet we still have a sense of violated justice that does not go away when the other person says, I'm really sorry. When we're seriously wrong, we have an 
a sense that the person have incurred a debt must be dealt with. Once you have been wronged and you realize that there is no, there is a just debt <clears throat> that can't simply be dismissed, there are only two things that you could do. The first option is to seek ways to make the person suffer for what they have done. And you could withhold the relationship and actively initiate or passively wish for some kind of pain in their lives or something else that needs to be experienced for them. There are many ways to do this. You could be vicious to them, confront them in a way that's not good. You could tarnish their reputation. You could make the person suffer, make them feel not satisfied or, or, or just feel horrible and, and not even pay off their debt. And there's some serious problems with this option. However, you could become harder and colder, more self-pitying, and therefore more self-absorbed. If the wronger was a person of wealth or authority, you may instinctively dislike and resist that sort of person for the rest of your life. If it was a person of the opposite sex or another race, you might become permanently cynical against them, prejudiced. And if anything, maybe towards their family and friends and others. And if anything, what really happens, it's a constant cycle of this retaliation that goes on for years. And there's no payment that's paid. If anything, there's always revenge and evil in your heart. And it spreads tragically over and over again. And it ultimately, if anything, it affects your character. There is no humility in any of this. So here are some final takes that Jesus, that I do believe that he wants us to do. He wants us to pursue forgiveness amongst others. He wants us to have a posture of humility because when we're able to be uh, humble, it will allow us to pursue truth and love and relationship to all people as you forgive and as you reconcile because the gospel calls us then to keep us, to keep an equal concern, to speak the truth and honor what is right, yet to be endlessly forgiving as we do so and to never give up on the goal of reconciled, warm relationship. Let me quote you this again from Kelleher, which I really do believe why we are in this series of the Kingdom Valley, because God knows our heart, and He knows exactly what's important for us. And I think this quote is powerful even for the church. See, unreconciled relationships within the church are invaluable because the church is such a wonderful, supernatural, created community. The reason there are so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because the church itself is not made of natural friends. It's actually made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, but common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationalities, common backgrounds, or common jobs, or anything else of that sort that binds most other groups of people together. But Christians come together, not because they form a natural coalition, but because they have been, been saved by Jesus Christ, and they owe Him a common allegiance. In this light, we are a band of natural, if anything, enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That is the only reason why John 13, verses 3 to 35, makes sense when Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. See, Christians love... Christian love will stand out and bear witness to Jesus because it is a display for Jesus' sake of mutual love among social incompatible people. <laughs> See, <clears throat> the reason we will have to hold ourselves accountable for our relationship is that mutual love in Christian community. And that's super hard. Think about it. 
Jesus has brought all these people together. But the reason that we will want to hold ourselves accountable for our relationship is that mutual love in Christian community is one of the main ways the world will see who Jesus is. So we must never give up on each other. We must always pursue each other in love and in truth and in grace. And this allows forgiveness to pour out. <clears throat> and this is to our staff, to our church leaders, to those in church planning, those who are in different ministry uh, spheres, those who are discipling others. If you wonder why church is so hard, reread that quote again. Because it really explains to you how God is putting all these people together and why God, through His scriptures, over and over again emphasize the importance of love and forgiveness. Because when He's bringing this community together, we're not all coming together as friends. We're all coming together as, if anything, as enemies where God is instilling all these values now in us to pursue after Him. So I close with this. When God reveals His glory to Moses, he says he forgives wickedness, yet does not leave the guilty unpunished. Not until the coming of Jesus do we see how God can be both completely just and forgiving through his atonement. See, it is in the cross that God satisfies, satisfies both the justice and love. God was so just and desirous to judge sin that Jesus had to die. But he was so loving for, for us, for our salvation, that Jesus was glad to die. We too are commanded now to forgive. And that is so crucial in what we see even in this passage itself. Because of the, the basis of Jesus' atonement for our sins is basically to forgive us our debt as we also have forgiven our debtors. If you do not forgive men their sins, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you of your sin. But we are also required to forgive in the way that honors justice just as God forgives, forgiveness does. So if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Christians are called to abandon bitterness, to forbearing to have a forgiving stance, even where the repentance of the offering party is absent of it. Either way, what is important for us is the forgiveness that Christ gave upon us. Now we get to extend it to others. See, the image of being released from a debt is a great illustration of what it is to forgive. You heard the phrase, forgive and forget. People are confused. They think that forgive, forgiveness equals forgetting, but it doesn't. You know, you know they owe you, but when you don't make them pay, you know that it costs you. We don't forget. We can't forget, but we don't hold a grudge. We don't bring it up again. And I think that's exactly what happens here for the church. So Edge City, when you forgive others, it will always come from a cost. And Jesus here is not saying how many times, because God forgives us is endless. The question, how can we forgive others? <laughs> it always comes with a cost. And we know this, that Jesus himself, he had to absorb the wrath that was deserved for you and I. Instead, Jesus took on our behalf. And that way, he is able to forgive you and I. In the same way, now we get to extend that forgiveness to our brothers and sisters, whether that's in the church, in our family, in our workplaces, whatever it is. Let that be the motive. Let that be the drive because of what Christ has accomplished for us on that cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, <clears throat> for our people, our community, our church here. Lord, I pray 
that your spirit will fall upon each and every one of us. If there is any bitterness or anger in any one of our hearts, let this morning, this day, be a time that our people will move toward a next step, Lord. Move from A to B, Lord, to work in reconciliation, to extend forgiveness to others, knowing that it is radical, but you call of it, Lord, for us. So, Lord, I pray for that. I pray that our church will have a posture of humility and humbleness, even if we have to forgive uh, for things that we've done wrong. So, Lord, I thank you for all that you do. We, we thank you and we give praise to your name, Jesus. Amen.